next thing I know, uh, I'm laying there. I don't know how long I was laying there, but the raid turned into a narcotics bus on the first floor, a shooting of a police officer to a barricaded person in a span of seconds. And what had happened was as I was reaching for her, the guy shot four times down at me. And I found out later that he hit me here, he hit me here. Number three shot back left shoulder blade, but number four shot went between the, the, the bottom of the helmet and the top of that armor in the neck and the bullet went straight on my, my spine, spinal cord to the chest level, took the left turn into my lung. He ran into the bedroom behind a woman and he had surrounded himself with a bunch of kids. He flushed the dope. Uh, the only thing we had left over was the wrappers. Uh, he surrounded himself with his kids. I think there was like six of them in there and the woman. And then they finally went in there, busting the door down and, and got him out. I, I've referred to police work now from day one till my last day in patrol as a front row seat to life. Where else are you gonna be paid to go into people's lives, into their environment, to see them at their best, to see them at their worst? You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Dallas, Texas is the third largest city in Texas. We have so much history. We had the JFK and Officer J.D. Tippett murder. We are the home of the Cowboys, the Mavs, the Stars, the Margaret Hunt Hill Bridge, Reunion Tower, the famous Green Building, the Ewing Oil Family, the SMU death penalty scandal comes to mind. Today's guest was born before all of this and grew up in West Dallas. After serving his country in Vietnam, he returned home to the city in Dallas and began serving the city that he grew up in. His reputation as a field training officer was legendary as he took pride in having a hand in molding officers for the future of this department and this city. However, life takes us all in different directions. As we grow in personal and professional life, police work is no different. At 46 years old, 
David Rodriguez decided to go to a narcotics unit. We will detail a 1994 shooting that changed his life forever. We're going to welcome on David Rodriguez, Dallas PD. David, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. All right. Your your story has a lot of history to it. Um, you were one of the co-founders of the ATO, along with Popkin and, and, and Bill, and we're, we're going to get to that. But you have an incredible story hiring on in 1969 with Dallas PD. It's a lot of history, and um, we're going to lead up to an incident in the 90s. And you had already had a long career before this happened, and it affected you, and we're going to tell that story. You ready to get into it? Sure. Let's okay. go. All right. All right, I want to start off. Where did you grow up? I grew up here in Dallas, Texas. Okay. What Homegrown. Part? What part? Uh, Little Mexico. You know where the American Airlines Center is now? Yeah. That was Little Mexico. Really? And that's where I grew up. Yeah. Uh, uh, grew up there. Uh, then we moved over to the projects in West Dallas for a while. And uh, the projects uh, back then were segregated by race. We lived in the, we lived in the Mexican section. Then there was a black and there was a white section, believe it or not. Um, what are and, some of the streets over there? That uh, Oh, gosh. Uh, Greenleaf, that's a street that we used okay. to live on. Okay. Uh, oh, gosh, that's a good – you threw me for a loop there. <laughs> I, I started well, working I'm, out there. I'm thinking Greenleaf, West Dallas. Shaw, yeah. so many inner – they all cross each other, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, uh, Bernal, West, bordered by Westmoreland, Singleton. Yep, those are some big ones. And, uh, yeah, those are the main streets. Uh, but Shaw – Oh gosh, the that's right in the middle Pinkston's of West Dallas. On. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right in the heart of it. What are some of the? Uh, so you grew up. What what time? What time period was that? That uh, well, that was the. Uh, I was born in '48, so the early '50s. Okay. Uh, went to uh, Cumberland School, which, for most people that don't know it, is right next to uh, the, that park that's over the freeway right now. Uh, Clyde Warren. Yeah. Clyde, oh yeah, Clyde Warren. Warren. Yeah. And uh, then I went to William B. Travis Elementary School on uh, on McKinney, where all the high rises are now. Probably look much different then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing but little one-story houses and mom and pop stores, uh, uh, stuff like that in in that neighborhood. That's, I mean, we used to walk across the street from the elementary school, uh, a little uh, grocery store with the wooden doors with the screen on it, and that was it. You know. Air and conditioning was rare back in those days. And now it's full of concrete. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah you know. And um, and then, of course, into the 60s. Uh, went from uh, William B. Travis Elementary to uh, Spence Junior High School and then to North Dallas High School back okay. then. So, so you, you talk about the 60s. So you hired on with Dallas in 1969. 1969. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how old were you when the Kennedy assassination happened? Uh, a guy, I remember I was a, a freshman in high school. Okay. And I remember that day that a lot of kids skipped school to go watch him because, you know, he was going to be coming down Lemonette. Well, he did come down Lemon Avenue from, uh, from uh, Love Field Airport, and then he went into the downtown area for the parade. And a lot of the kids skipped school. Well, I didn't skip school because... If I had skipped school, my mom would have had my butt. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my uh, favorite classes were going to be that particular day. 
which was uh, French. Uh, the French class was my favorite class at that time, and I was not going to miss that class. So I said, no, I'm not going to go. You know, yeah, I, I wasn't interested in stuff like that at that time. Yeah, you, you weren't know? into politics. So how did you find out that day in school? How did they tell you all? All of a sudden, you started hearing all these sirens going up, and just continu- and just continuous and continuous. And finally, the teachers just kind of like started looking out the windows, you know wondering what's going on you know it must be a big fire something major's going on because you just don't hear that many sirens that day uh and then the principal came on uh later on the intercom said, yeah uh-huh because what it, it happened twelve thirty, somewhere through there one o'clock and we got out at four in those days you know four o'clock was and so that's how we heard about it. of course we were told we got dismissed from class teachers were starting to cry because they were teachers back then were really into groove of what was going on and kind of out of school real early and so we yeah. started going home we went on about our business you know freshman in high school you're not thinking about things like that it doesn't impact you until later on as to what was going on yeah the weight of what hit what actually happened for the yeah. country was and, probably and, and then the fact that it happened here you know the yeah. big kill thing was being done on city of dallas still is today and i'm like yeah, with it, it, you know, it was looked at as a city of hate for a long time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that happened in 63, and just six years later, you decided you wanted to get in law enforcement. How did that ha- How did you decide make that decision? Well, I in my uh, senior year in high school, I didn't, I didn't graduate from high school. I got my GED because at that time, you know, we had the draft going on. Right. And it was going to be my time pretty soon to get drafted. And Vietnam was just building up at that point. And I said, well, you know what? I don't know that I really want to go into the Army, but I know I'm going to have to do something. So I decided to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. I got accepted and uh, went uh, my, my last year and a half. I decided, you know, this stuff is boring. Vietnam was picking up. I don't know. I had a sense of real patriotism at the time. I said, I got to go over and do my bit. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to go over and join, go and join the PBR units over there, which if you've seen the movie Apocalypse Now, you know, that little boat that takes Martin Sheen up to the river. Yes. That's what I was on. I was a gunner's mate. I was responsible for all the weapons on board that boat. And, um, that was, that was an awesome experience. Well, what happened was we got discharged, and uh, we got flown when, on my discharge date uh, time. We got flown to San Francisco to be uh, let out of the processed out is the term they were using back then. Well, they had career days. Half the day we spent being interviewed, or not being interviewed, but being lectured about careers. Well, at that time, most police departments were hiring military people because of this big influx of people that were being let out of the military. And uh, California Highway Patrol, LAPD, San Francisco PD, a lot of agencies, uh, federal agencies came and said, hey, this is what we offer, um, de, dum, de, dum. and in one ear and out the other for me. Well, I came home, and I had saved a bunch of money from Vietnam, and within about 30 days of coming home, I blew every penny. <laughs> <laughs> on what? Okay. On just junk, going, not getting, not, believe it or not, not chasing women, getting drunk, because I was, I, I had my 
fill of getting drunk over in Vietnam. Uh, I actually got sick many times over there getting drunk. It's probably a way uh, to cope back then. Well, over there. what was over in Vietnam? We you, we could always get hard liquor and beer. On the front lines, you could never get Coke and Seven Up to mix with hard liquor. So straight. So you either drink it straight, or you drank it with orange drink, or grape, or strawberry drinks. And I mean that is a gut wrenching. Yeah. Open up the next within minutes after you finish a drink. Stuff. I mean, whew, it wasn't exotic drinks. Let's put it that way. So, uh, you know, I came back and I, I just was. Going to the movies, uh, spending money on gas. I had a car. Uh, I had a 57 Chevy that I, was, I used to drive back then. I mean, I just blew money on my family and everything like that. Uh, we, were, we, we were basically poor. But uh, just gave my mom a bunch of money and this, that, and the other. Well, it was going to be time to suck up and get a job. I mean, mm-hmm. I was downtown just walking around looking for a job discharged military people back then looked like discharged military people short haircut white shirt cotton pants or blue jeans were not in style back then and one day i was standing at the corner of the old city hall on main street on main street in commerce and haskell and i was standing there at the at the light looking the city i was just looking around where am i going to look for a job and this that and the other i had applied at a couple of department stores and this that and the other and Rudy Diaz, who was a sergeant then on the police department, was standing right next to me. And at that time, traffic division uh, and, and police personnel were in a little building across the street from police headquarters, which was the old city hall. And he was standing there, and he, you know, he looked at me. He says, hey, were you just back from Nam and this, that, and the other? Uh, for, not from Nam, but from the, from the service. And I said, yeah, I just got back from Nam and this, that, and the other. And he said, well, what are you doing around here and everything like that? And he said, well, I'm just looking for a job and this, that, and the other. He says, uh, well, you know, you, uh, you want to be a police officer? I mean, just casual comments at a red light. We were both walked. We were on pedestrians, and we were going to go across the street. He said, well, come on over, man. We're hiring. I'm like, okay. You know, I've heard this spiel before. So we went across the street. And, you know, he talked to me for a few minutes. He says, okay, you got to go over here back to City Hall, do the civil service test, and then come back to us and everything like that. Human resource, uh, police human resources was over there uh, where the police, uh, where, where his office was. And so I went over and did the civil service test. And I said, Put the paperwork through them, and I called him up a few day, a couple of days later. And uh, back then, we didn't have entry PT tests. Wow! All they did was a background check. That was it. No college. There, there, was, there was no psych services. None of that. And polygraph. <laughs> no, no. Well, they had polygraphs to an extent. Only police officers that were hired from out of state. If you were local, they had enough people to, ba- to, to do a background, and if they checked off on you, that was basically it. Back then, if you were in the military and you got discharged at honorably, that was it. I mean, that was the acceptance of most police departments. I, 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 when they did the oral interview board, but the oral interview board wasn't a three-person one. It was like a seven-person board of chiefs, primarily, is all it was. Wow. Was it tough? Uh, 
was that more tough? It, 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 for me, it was because I was sweating. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Military back then, again, that's all they were hiring. So the questions were kind of easy. Okay. The tough, well, the one that they really grilled me on was the fact that I had never been in a fight in high school. <laughs> they could never figure out why, you know, I had never been in a fight. Well, didn't you ever hate anybody? Well, yeah. Well, didn't you get in a fight with them? No. Well, why not? Because I didn't want to get injured. You know, right. that was it. Because back then, that's all cops did most of the time was they got in fights with people out here. And so, uh, and of course, I was I, being Hispanic. They just couldn't, back then, segregation in housing, segregation in residential, segregation in schools, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my high school, Hispanic, I mean, North Dallas now is, you can't find a white kid in that high school. Back then, it was mostly all white. Hispanics, most Hispanics went to, this high school that was downtown, uh, it was a technical school that most Hispanic and black kids went to. And uh, you didn't go to North Dallas. For one thing, most minorities didn't live in that district. Right. I just happened to be right on the border. It later turned out, Rudy told me, he said, you know, the main reason you got hired is because you're a Mexican. I said, hey, Rudy's Mexican, so we, we always were able to talk like this to each other. And I said, well, why is that? He says, at that time, he says, at this point that we're hiring you, you know, he said, there was only like 10 tops, I think he said 15 Hispanic officers on a department that was at that point around 19, maybe 2,000 officers. Wow. Yeah. And so, of course, the population was pretty, the city was pretty big, but they just, I mean, when you look at pictures, uh, of the department that we had back then, you see it's mostly uh, white officers. And uh, as a matter of fact, after I left the academy, there were several instances where uh, there'd be a, 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 a major incident over in the Lakewood area where they would need an interpreter. And if I was on duty, they, the dispatchers would call around and they would ask, are there any Spanish-speaking officers? And I would, yeah, I'm, I'm available. Well, we need you over here in Lakewood. Friday afternoon, heavy traffic. They sent the helicopter, which was a new unit back then. They would send a helicopter over to pick me up at Regal Row in Stemmons and fly me over there to do interpreting. Did interpret. for a, for a, uh, I did a couple of uh, homicides and a couple of uh, hit-and-run fatality wrecks for A&Is back then uh, because they needed – to, to interview witnesses and suspects that I mean right there and then so that's how limited the department was in terms of uh, uh, foreign language speakers on the department that's amazing especially because looking at how diverse the city is oh. now in the department I mean you every unit you don't nobody would ever get a, a helicopter escort to a scene oh, <laughs> that, that, I mean, nowadays that was, <laughs> I mean I had enough rides over at Nam I didn't need any extra yeah you didn't need no more <laughs> but at least I was I wasn't getting shot at in those helicopters, good flying over the city, you know, and that was pretty awesome, you know, because I couldn't drive over there even running Code 3 on a Friday afternoon sometimes, and yeah. that's when most hit and runs and, and homicides were, would occur in the city, and they still, I guess, do to this day. But, oh, yeah. 
but that's how limited the department was on minority officers. How was so, the city set up back then? Like, were you assigned to a certain geographical area, or was the city even uh, big yeah, enough? Yeah, to do you that? were assigned to a division. Uh, there was only five divisions at the time. You know, five channels. Right. And I got assigned to Northwest. So we had on uh, Elmer Sonny Boyd. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah. He was in, okay, mm-hmm. so we had on Elmer's uh, story, and he answered the very first dispatch call at Northwest when it opened in the 50s. Is that right? It was really cool. Yeah, he, he oh, answered wow. when it first opened up, the first call that was dispatched to that division, he answered it. it was, that's kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. My family grew up in um, in West Dallas over there off Nomis and uh, Sylvan. Oh, yeah? Area. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the wow. Be- Benavides. Uh, you probably been to the Benavides restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was my uncle. Oh, yeah, was that, that right? Yep. yep oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, my family, they still, uh, a lot of them still live out there, some in Kessler Park and then uh, in, uh, in Oak Cliff. So, wow. Yep. That's something. So we talked about you the, uh, getting into the department right out of Vietnam. They're looking for veterans when you get on how your academy class how many veterans were in there i i would say 80 percent of the academy class 80 to 90 about 80 to 90 percent of them were yeah because there was a few that they of two or three of them that couldn't join the military because of physical disabilities flat foot i forgot what the reasons were back then that they would military wouldn't flat out take you, you know, uh, but it wouldn't be enough to disqualify you at the time because again, the department didn't have really. I mean, as long as you back then, as long there was a height and weight requir- requirement on the department that there was, uh, but if you don't, if you didn't fit those those measurements, well, they wouldn't hire you. So, so a lot of the the Vietnam vets, just like yourself. You, there's a that was an ugly war, and, and that and that war is uh, it went on forever, and it, and it was it was a brutal war. And there's a lot of PTSD from the guys coming back from that, and and then when they were when they did come back, they there was a lot of there was a lot going on in the country. They weren't really accepting of the soldiers from that war. Right? Did you see any of that? No. Okay. And I I didn't. Because, and most of us were discharged coming back from Vietnam, were discharged in San Francisco. Okay. Of all branches, majority, I take that back, the Air Force was not. But most Army, Marine, and Navy discharges were in San Francisco. Treasure Island at the time, uh, uh, which if you know anything about San Francisco, Treasure Island is that island that's in the middle of the bay between San Francisco, you know, the bridge that goes between uh, from San Francisco to Oakland, mm-hmm. there's an island right in the middle of, of the bay that's Treasure Island. At the time, it was Treasure Island Naval Station, and that's where we were uh, housed and processed out of the military. Most of us avoided going into town. Most of us did not come in through uh, uh, civilian airports. Very few uh, discharge uh, 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 people being discharged from the military came through a civilian airport. Most of us landed in military, so we were transported from military airplane onto a military bus over to Treasure Island. And most of us didn't have the money to the bucks to spend in San Francisco. Right, California was expensive back then, uh, so most of us didn't have to be exposed to that. 
I came back to Dallas, uh, not in uniform. Uh, I, I stayed in civilian clothes. I mean, Rudy was able to pick me out because uh, you had that he, look. he had had me, uh, members in, a, in the military. So you, you had that look. Uh, that, and fortunately, it was very early after being discharged that I still maintained that look. Of course, that day, I was wearing clothes to, to go look for a job possibly to be interviewed at that particular moment so you had to kind of dress for the for for, for what you were doing I, I i didn't uh most of those people that that had problems with ttsd they started having those problems in vietnam we had problems with our fellow members in our own units get uh getting high on dope over there in vietnam uh, I mean, there were several times that we ended up having to tie down people in their bunks because they were so junked out on stuff over there. I mean, they were going wild. The in heroin. Barracks. Heroin. Oh, uh, it was easy to get. Uh, I mean, they started with marijuana, but it was mostly black tar heroin. That was, I, I say black tar. It, it was heroin that was being processed over there and being sold on the street. Uh, most. Over there, the, the, the one of the funny things I always noticed about uh, Vietnamese uh, elderly people was that their teeth were always missing. And one day, I asked our interpreter that was working on, on, on our boat, I said, why are the, most people's teeth missing like that? And I mean, it was flat across their mouth. And they said, well, you know, they eat this thing called beetle juice. They call it beetle juice over there, and it was a leafy substance from that was a derivative of the marrow of, of heroin the 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 heroin plant a family of that and they would eat it in leaves to reduce pain like we take i take hydrocodone here mm-hmm. you know to reduce pain from what they were going through and so it was easy to get high on stuff over there but i mean we used to die down of some of our members and they'd go nuts over there well some of the members oh, are 18 was, uh 20 something yeah they're yeah. young kids yeah exactly and then i mean i was i was involved in a few engagements and in, in a few firefights but not as many as a lot of those frontline mil, uh, marines and, and infantry I'll, I'll i'll i have to say that obviously give them the credit for that having been up there. and they were exposed to a heck of a lot more than i was but the 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 fear was the same for everybody whenever you were in contact because you never knew if it was going to be your moment to go and so it it, it was a problem but i would i i just i ne- i never jumped on to the mar- to the use of marijuana there stateside anytime in my in my life uh, it just i saw the effects of what it did to people at a very young age uh, over there. And then not only were they ruining their own lives, but they were putting my life in danger. I yeah. mean, I had to go out with these guys. I'm like, wait a minute. We're going to firefight? Are these guys going to curl up? I mean, if you saw that movie Apocalypse Now and you saw the characters react, how they were doing some of that stuff over there, that that actually did occur. It's really accurate. There. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that was accurate. Yeah. Do you think that your experience with the soldiers having the, the drug issues there led you to your career here in narcotics? No. So no. what what did you that, do? That, 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 that's a story in itself right okay. there. What did you do early in your career? How, how was it broken down? Because I know Northwest area is kind of known for bars and strip clubs oh, and prostitutes now, but what was best, it back then? The best division to work and to train. 
I mean, you had everything. You, uh, uh, our boundaries were from basically, uh, uh, you to call it the old Dallas Fort Worth Turnpike, I-30, uh, to the levee all the way over to, uh, gosh, what was it back then, uh, Dallas North Tollway up to the city limits back then, which city limits back then was LBJ. That was it, uh, all the way to downtown. So we had Ross Perot on one end, and uh, then we had the projects on the other, and everything in between. You had the bars, you had residential zones, you had Love Field, you, you had uh, just north of the Oakland area before Oakland became Oakland, so to speak. So, I mean, you had a variety of things to do. And even though the division was broken down, broken down into sectors, those sectors were big. And the numbers weren't there of officers to be out there handling calls and doing stuff. So we were exposed. Uh, if you were a two-man call, a two-man squad, you were exposed to all hell breaking loose in West Dallas and the projects to handling an alarm call up there off of four slain, you know, uh, or any call that required a, a two-man. So it, it, it was just an awesome, awesome division to work at. And what, and kind, of, what kind of police work did you gravitate to? What, what was your favorite thing to do? I'm sorry. Your, your favorite type of police work? Were you into chasing stolen cars yeah, or finding burglars? Everything. Just loved it all? Everything. I, I've referred to police work now from day one till my last day in patrol as a front row seat to life. Where else are you going to be paid to go into people's lives, into their environment, to see them at their best and see them at their worst? I mean, people see TV and they imagine and they see the news broadcast of things going on and shows that, that are created off of incidents that occur out here. But they're not there. I mean, I mean that term, first responders, is a great term because we're the first ones to get there when people need help, and we may be too late to help them. But they still need you, you know. They still need us. And what an awesome responsibility once you accept that fact that we're there for them, it just opens up the door to everything else. Then once once we do that, then it substantiates you're going out there and going after the bad guys. I mean, catching the bad guys is a good thing. That's a great thing. But it all stems from because there's a complainant out here. And it may not be an open-faced complainant. I mean... Uh, People say that arresting prostitutes is a, uh, uh, what's the term? Victimless. Yeah, victimless, victimless crime. crime. And drug use, they say, is a victimless crime. No, uh-uh. Yeah. Especially after I went to narcotics, I got to see that narcotics arrests are not a victimless crime because crime stems from people abusing alcohol and drugs. DWIs. Accidents occur because of people drinking and driving. You know, you know what I'm talking there is about. There's a nexus. There's a nexus of drugs to a lot. Even th- going to burglaries and theft because you have a lot of addicts that go and burglarize places to get items to trade, or, or and that's how they survive. 
they it's a cycle. I mean, it, it's been so sad to see departments, especially, uh, I hate to see it in Dallas, where they, uh, what do they call it? Uh, what do they call it when they uh, say, well, you know, theft over 50, and this, uh, theft is theft. Yeah. I mean, just because you, you get caught for stealing chewing gum doesn't mean that you didn't go out there and steal somebody's fur coat from a lady and never got caught for it, you know? I mean, if yeah, somebody has what, a tendency to still, when you look at the number yeah. of crimes that go unsolved, that's the number of crimes that somebody did commit a crime against somebody that owned that property, or lost their life due to somebody out there uh, engaging in illegal activity. Uh, so, the beginning of it all, the fun, so to speak, of chase, chases were great. Uh, but they were dangerous. If we ever get around to it, I'll, I've got an incident that occurred to me that uh, kind of shed the light of why we, we shouldn't chase. Let's talk about it. I've got my own argument about why people, why we shouldn't chase. Yeah. Let's talk about it. What's, what's the incident? Uh, I, I, most of my time, uh, my highlight in, in patrol was training. I was, I was a field training officer. And I'm sure you've heard this uh, at your birthday party a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to Keith Wenzel, and he talked about how you and Raul Duarte were the go-to FTOs there at Northwest. If someone needed a rookie to be fixed or corrected, oh. you, you two guys were the, yeah. the go-to people that were going to solve the problem, and they'd come back crystal cl- clear, clean. Uh, m- most of the time. I mean, I, 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 got, I got sent recruits from other divisions that – they were getting ready to be terminated and they would send them you know they would always ask i mean yeah. they just didn't impose it on you they would ask uh, uh, a chief would call my chief and say hey we need to do that can we send them yeah send them over and the chief all right chief would call me say you want to do that yeah sure i'll do it i i just had a different way of, of training recruits uh, uh you know i didn't badger them i i didn't I, I made them learn from their mistakes and made them correct their mistakes. Uh, and it was, it, and most of their mistakes were the fact that they never paid attention to the little details. If you take care of the little details, the big ones just fall in place for you. But, uh, and, and I appreciate that comment that Keith w- would make. Uh, but I, I, I just absolutely love, love training. But anyway, getting back, it, chases are essential. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, about that. But uh, one night I was training a recruit, and we were up there. Uh, we were working evenings, and uh, we got behind some bars. Uh, it was a, I think it was, yeah, it was a, it was a Friday, Friday evening, and uh, up there around off of Denton and Harry Hines, there's a bunch of bars on both on both streets that your parking lots were back to back. So you go into the come in off of Harry Hines and drive through one parking lot, go to the next one, you'd come out on Denton Drive. Well, we came in off of Harry Hines, came in behind a bar over on Denton Drive, and we saw these guys breaking into a car. And as soon as we lit them up with our with our headlights, as soon as they saw us, they jumped out of the car they were breaking into, carrying some stuff in their hand, jumped into their car, and they took off. And it was four of them. 
And so they headed south on Denton Drive. And as soon as it said it started going south on Denton Drive, we got in behind them, obviously, turned on the lights and siren. And I was driving. And uh, we got in a chase, advised the dispatcher. Heading down Denton Drive, no traffic. Uh, we went about half a mile. And they turned into this residential zone that Denton Drive goes over Northwest Highway. And uh, in that wedge there between Denton Drive and Northwest Highway, there's a cross street that uh, uh, Community Drive, that when you turn left onto it, it becomes all apartment complex. But that street goes all the way to Northwest Highway, crosses Northwest Highway, and goes up towards Love Field. As soon as that suspect vehicle turned left, and I mean, he was, he, he was hooking them. As soon as he turned left, we were maybe 10 cars behind him, somewhere around that number. We were 10 cars. As soon as he turned left, I, I told my recruit, shut the lights, shut the lights, kill the lights. Because I feared that he was going to go into that residential zone and hurt somebody. He turned left. Of course, I turned left to just follow him at that point our lights were not on you could see his tail lights and he busted a stop sign and never saw i never saw his brake lights he busted the stop sign and the next intersection is community drive and northwest highway and if you know that area northwest highway at that at that traffic light is six traffic lanes three three each way and the suspect vehicle uh, on a red light, heavy traffic, cross traffic, went through the one, two, three lanes of traffic uh, going eastbound, went through four and number five lane of traffic going westbound, red light. We stopped at the stop sign. I hit my brakes, started to accelerate, and just thinking to myself, oh, my God, oh, my God. That's all I said to myself internally. But he made it through all those lanes. And in the number five lane, there was a dark bus coming left. And in the number six lane was a little Volkswagen and a girl. Driving the car, head-on collision, I mean, T-bone. Their vehicle went and rolled into a ravine. Her car rolled into a ravine. And her car ended up upside down. And if you know what a Volkswagen looks like, the bubble was in the ravine, and all we could see was the bottom of our car, the wheels spinning. It was awful. Anyway, I told my rookie, get the suspect. I ran to the, I ran to the, uh, the vehicle, the Volkswagen, and if you remember your oral interview board, they give you that little placard. And the first thing on that placard is not arrest suspects, don't chase them. It's, you know, take care of yourself, your partner, and then the victim. My rookie's okay. I'm okay. Now my concern is the victim. And you go up there, and then that victim... Well, that girl, you see her hanging upside down, seat belted in. And you go up there, you check 
her neck. You try to get her out. She's pinned in there. You can't do anything. Of course, you know, you, you've called yeah, you've called for the fire department. They get there. They get her out. She's dead. Suspect's arrested. I had chases afterwards, but, you know, they were always much, much better controlled. You're right. Chases are extremely dangerous. And, and when officers, when they're in the middle of them, they're fun. But the downside, the tragedy, yeah. that, that that's why. The risk-reward. You, you yeah. have to, you know, I, I you know, when we started the chase, it was just them and us. Empty road. You know, that's why it's important when the dispatchers and departments are mandating from officers and chases, what's the weather, what's the conditions, what's the traffic. You have to understand why they're asking because there's not that many fatality accidents that occur from chases. When you look at the numbers, there aren't that many, but there's enough. There's enough only get injured. There just aren't that many that get killed. And they get personal and they don't happen to everybody. So, uh, yeah, you know, if we were chasing somebody that we knew had a kidnapped victim, you know, maybe it, it, it'd be easier to accept, but that wasn't the case. I mean, we're talking property. Yeah. They, they, and they'll turn in an insurance claim, and it's over and done with, you know. Stolen cars, they're fun. They're awesome. But I, I used to tell people because i used to teach out of the academy also i used to teach i used to tell them i said how many of y'all ever went to court testified in the stolen car case in most cases when the car gets stolen their people get their car their insurance they're insured so they're going to get part of their property back yeah it's going to they're not going to get the full value of their car back but how many people ever get convicted or sent to jail for auto theft. Yeah. Even back then in the early 70s. It, it, I, I take it back. In the early 70s, yeah. If you were second and third time offender for auto theft, yeah, you, you did get sent up to a hard time. The same thing for people that carried guns. We'd make a bus back then. It meant something when you put somebody in jail for carrying a weapon. Today, most yeah. probation, if even that. If that. But back then gun control was gun control was us having them and then not having them and them getting sent to jail even if it was 30 60 days in the county jail they did time back then for stuff like that that's time off the Today. street that they could not be committing right. a crime yeah but now but nowadays it's just it's just not worth your life a citizen's life you know and and, and to a great extent even suspects but heck their decision to make You're to right. run from you you know so but you know, that was my incident with, with things like that. And then the worst part of that is you had to go and testify in court. And I had to testify in court. And <laughs> that day in court that I, was, that I had to go up there and testify, the only people in the courtroom was the family members of the victim. And you're sitting there, and the prosecutor's right there, and the family's right, right behind them. That was the next worst day for me so you know there's a ripple effect of tragedy exactly. that, that's beyond just yeah being part of the initial chase and seeing you saw it a horrific tragedy right in front of you yeah. and the, the you get girl, to see the family after the girl's sister ended up marrying an austin police officer and i got and i went down there and i, I talked 
to her to, to Babette with her name was was Gina's uh, sister's name and uh, Babette married an awesome police officer and that when I went down to talk to her years after this incident uh, we we talked for about two or three hours and as we were leaving I just happened to ask I said well how is the rest of your family doing she says oh they're doing fine she she said she kind of sure he said you know I don't know whether to tell you this but you know my mom my mom still hates you for it and it wasn't till about two years after that incident their mom sent me a letter and said she finally went through it an epiphany or whatever you want to call it and wrote me a letter and apologized and (laughs) because of that guy's actions followed by my actions their daughter's dead and we're all still alive and still going through all this you know but you established a relationship with her family afterwards and that speaks volumes for your character no it speaks volumes for them well that too but for for you to to a relationship is two ways right it's not a one-way street so don't don't discount yourself on this no i i don't i mean i i you know i i was given time off after the incident because of the way it happened not by the department but my by my chief out there at northwest he just gave me time off he says when you're ready you come back who was that i i I came back who who was the chief uh john driscoll at the time he said when you're ready you come back and I, the more time I spent away, the more it was hurting me and my family. I had to go back. First of all, it was my income to take care of myself and my family. Right. I had to do that from that standpoint. I mean, I could have dragged that time off for forever and ever, but mentally I could, there's no way I could take it. I couldn't sit there and look at those walls and Say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my God. Yeah, it was horrific, but I had to do something. And I mean, the minute I got back, I got back in the training mode, uh, another recruit, and then he become, or they become my responsibility. And then the people that we, that we were serving, uh, they're my responsibility. What and year then, was and that? And then things happened thereafter that picked me up, but it got me away from that scenario. Right. What year was that 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 happened? 86. 86. Uh, 85, 86. Somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah. Either and her, her, her mom wrote me the letter in 91. That's how long it took. Wow. For her mom. To so you knew, you said you grew up in West Dallas, went to Northwest. How, how was it being a cop where you grew up and being one of the first, you know, one of the few Hispanic officers in that area? Were you treated? Was there, how was the reception from the community and you? What did little Mexico think, you know, or if you ever went back over there, how, how were you received when you, when you were, uh, became a police officer and started off? When uh, growing up down there at the old, in that area down there of American Airlines Center, uh, mostly white officers. And I, I remember I, one night in specific, uh, my mom got a running a yellow blinking traffic light ticket mm. in the middle of the night. Mm. 
at an intersection. I was a little kid. I was riding with her. And I, not knowing the law or anything like that, at, as a kid, I just like, oh, okay, you know. But then as I grow older and then I became a police officer and I fall back on that, I'm like, why did he have to write her a ticket for a blinking yellow? You know what a blink, blinking yellow yeah. yellow light is? Pause. In the middle of the night, you know, um, I, I never understood that. But it kind of guided me with how I was going to do deal with people out here. But when when we hit the streets in 1970, 19, early 1970, um, I, as a police officer, I was hated by white people because I was a Mexican officer. I was hated by Mexicans because I was a traitor, and I was hated by blacks because I was a Mexican dealing with blacks. I mean, you couldn't you you couldn't win one way or the other back then as a minority officer, and I'm and there weren't that there were not at Northwest there were no black officers at all. So th- th- among that division at that time in the early seventies, I, I I was a minority out there. But as soon as everybody realized out there that I was helpful, you know, the officers just dealt with me better than they dealt with the regular rookies, uh, white rookie. I mean, they they would mess with them like forever. But because I was really helpful to them, you know, in their interpretation, because the Hispanic community was just starting to grow back then in the love field, in that area of Northwest, Um, it, it... it uh, it was easy for me to just kind of blend in because of that, uh, but but I did I did have problems with the white community dealing with me. I mean, I, we would show up on calls, and some and the number the percentage is very low, but they would gravitate to the white officer right off the bat, and they would talk to them as if I wasn't even standing there. You know, uh, they'd be talking about an incident, and uh, they they'd give an indication. Well, the the guy hit my car, and then he got out of his car and he went that direction. And I would, and if the white officer was doing the interview, I'm okay. Go, well, I'm going to make myself useful. I'm going to go look for the suspect. And I would say, well, what did the guy look like, or what did the suspect look like? And they would turn to me, and they turned back to the white officer and says. Well, he was wearing, you know, that type of anatomy yeah. here to over there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, my job now is to go chase suspect. That, uh, I didn't take it personally. You know, I said, okay, you know, it's 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 society. I'll, I'll live with it. You know, I'm doing my job. So, so back in the early 70s, back to that, 1973 with the Santos Rodriguez shooting, uh-huh. how big of effect did that have on you or did, did, i know that was east dallas i don't know how much that affected you if you went over there at all to deal with that or if your no, family no or, uh, no i i didn't um it it didn't affect me to the degree that not a lot but the scenario under which he got killed did occur more often than it should than it should have okay that attitude of taking your gun out and, and back then uh, we were issued 38 revolvers but after you got off training basically when you left the academy you could carry whatever you wanted I mean people were carrying 
if you were to carry a cannon, they were carrying a cannon. Uh, most officers back then carried three fifty sevens. I I just I just carried my thirty eight. You know, so I, okay, I'm, I can be as good with that as anybody can with a three fifty seven over here. Uh, but if you remember that the way he got killed in the back seat of the car with the officer doing the interview, doing click, click, click. Russian roulette, basically. That right. happened more often than people knew. So I want to get into, we talked about your time in West Dallas and patrol and tragedy you had to witness. I want to talk about an invasion of Dallas at the time, and that's the drug wars that hit town. And all the violence and all the tragedy that stemmed from that. Uh, we've talked about it before with Chief Kowalski and Lieutenant Owens about the formation of narcotics. And can you kind of talk about the drug wars hitting and the violence that was occurring and how you got over to narcotics? To be honest with you, I was still, I was so involved with everything in, in patrol, I'm sure as in today, but back then you had within patrol you had your, your little cliques of officers that they were good at this dope chasers and the, yeah, the eastons yeah. and the freezes were good under <laughs> undercover surveillance work over here the lance crawfords and them were good at chasing dope over here uh, uh you name it and my specialty i'm not bragging but my specialty was field training training officers to do the basic good things first then you can go out there and do your own specialty. Once you're away from me that you're doing, I've trained you the best of my ability to do what you're supposed to be doing. That's my job. Uh, uh, besides the fact that unlike many FTOs, I wasn't responsible for having to write tickets, and I hated writing tickets. Right. So, man, you give me a rookie any day of the week, as many dumb as you want to, I just don't want to write tickets. <laughs> and so I said, okay, that's a perk. But, I mean, just just the pleasure and the opportunity to train police officers because a number one uh even though i'm not a resident of the city at that time what if i was i i if i, if I had to call a cop i would want them to treat me with a respect that i would that i mean i wouldn't want to be respected as a citizen rather than being berated i wouldn't want to be talked to right so that was my specialty when the drug war hit and they formed all those units. I mean, narcotic expanded, but I, I my mindset wasn't over there to be honest with you. Uh, until I went to narcotics. How did you get in? How did you get into that? That's a funny story. Let's hear it. Uh, at at I'd been I'd spent what twenty three years in patrol, and I finally went. You know, maybe I ought to try something. But there's nothing out there that I really want to do. Uh, I, don't, I don't trust myself on a motorcycle. I ain't going to do that. Horses, no way I can do, no way I can get up there. Uh, what's out there? What, what, what's left? Uh, I don't want to do a desk job. My, my desk job, I'm perfectly happy out here. My desk job is this patrol car. <sighs> Am I ready to give it up? No. So the only thing left was SWAT. Okay, you know, I, I, I can bring some of my skills from Vietnam all these years on patrol and transfer it over to SWAT. Uh, at, the, at the time, again, there was quite a few Hispanic officers over in SWAT. 
But I thought, okay, you, you, you can deal with an extra one. And I forgot who I had talked to over there. Well, they were going to have an opening in one of their one of their teams, as they were called, I guess, back then. So, you know, they were going to do the interviews. They're, they had a group of there was five of us that were going to go for this one position. And one uh, one of the officers had been in SWAT before, and we were all doing our PT, our our, our physical testing to go over there. And we did the run over at Fair Park. And then back then, they did the the weights over at Central Station. Okay. The weight room that's down there. I don't know if it's still down there or not. So we did the run, and the sergeant said, okay, y'all go back to Central, and we'll do we'll do the weight things. And I'm like, okay. And up to that point, you know, I, I had been a runner for a year, so the run was no problem. The weights, mm, okay, I did a weights back at, at Northwest. We had a pretty good weight room. So I was always working out there. And so went to the weight room. We're sitting around, this, that, and the other chit-chat and waiting for the sergeant to come in and give us a test. I, I went out into the break room to get a drink or something. Anyway, I went out there, and Ted Shin happened to be walking by. And Ted Shin at that time was one of the sergeants of the six uh, uh, squads that they had formed uh, called the Street Squads. And he walked by, and uh, Ted and I had worked over at Northwest together, and he saw me down. He said, what are you doing down here? I said, I'm trying to test out and go up the tack and everything like that. And, oh, okay. And we chit-chatted a little while, and this, that, and the other. He says, and he just happened to say, well, listen, if it doesn't work out for you in tag, give me a call. I need a senior corporal in my squad. I said, oh, okay, up in narcotics. I said, okay, just in and out, being polite. But I didn't go to TAC. I didn't get the position. So I went back to patrol and I went, I give him a call or not? Okay, so I called him. I said, what you got to offer? And uh, he told me what the deal was and uh, what, what I needed, what I was going to be doing, this, that, and the other. He says, you'll be doing low-level street deals, but you'll be my senior corporal in my squad. So when I'm not here in court, this, that, and the other, you'll run the squad, so to, so to speak. But I need a senior corporal up here. But you'll still be doing work out there. I said, okay. All right, I, I, I can handle that. Well, I had a bunch, all bunch of friends and officers when they found out I was going to go up there. Uh he says, I'm supposed to interview you and this, that, and the other, but that's just the process. He says, I need a Spanish-speaking senior corporal up here. And I said, oh, okay. And so we we went to that little, and I got the job. I mean, you know, I knew Ted, and it, it worked out. And he said, yeah, come on up. I said, okay. Well, I had, and from the time that I, I got accepted to the time I went up there, I had a bunch of people saying, you're nuts. You're 46 fucking years old. What are you doing going yeah. <laughs> playing games out here dealing drugs on the street? I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what, I mean, I knew what they did, but I had no concept of undercover narcotics work. Uh, I, I said, it's a change of pace. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be like the acting sergeant most of the time. And I was trying to justify in the back of my I didn't see danger there. I, yeah, they, uh, Larry Cadena had been shot up there. His was a high-profile, you know, he was a task force officer. Right. His incident was horrible. They uh, uh, got killed over no cliff. Bond. Uh, yeah, you know, th that that situation.
But they had been revising their training all that time. After all those incidents, they would revise their training of how they were going to be doing undercover work. You could no longer get in the back seat. You couldn't get into cars with tinted windows. You couldn't do this, that, and the other. You were going to be monitored by another officer. You couldn't get out of sight of another officer, those sort of things. In the old days, they used to go into bars by themselves. They used to get drunk. All sorts of things, but they they would revise. They they Dallas would do a good job of revising their policies of doing undercover work like that. After tragedy, like Larry Bromley, his, his situation. Yeah, Larry Bromley. Yeah, Thank Larry Bromley. Yeah. Yep. I'm sorry, I forgot his yep. name. My first day, the first day I went up to Narcotics, I forgot what day of the week it was. It must have been a Thursday or Friday somewhere in through there. My transfer date. I go up there, and I know what I'm going to be doing is first day's processing. Your keys, your car, this, that, and the other, uh, the paperwork to go up there, and um, did, um, did, uh. so I know I'm going to be sitting at the desk for a while, one day for sure. Well, I go up there, uh, Ted's in court, and I, and I walked in, I was supposed to, supposed to check in with him, and there was a bunch of activity going on, a bunch of officers were loading up equipment into the van, to, it, yeah, it was a Friday because Friday was the day that they normally ran. We, we ran our raid. We do our work during the week, and on Fridays, we'd suit up and we'd go run the warrants. We'd uh-huh. run three or four warrants on a Friday. Well, there was a bunch of, they were, that's what they were doing. They'll say, it was a Friday. He says, well, listen, I'm short a driver for one of my vans for my raids. Come on. I'm like, do what? He says, I'm short a driver. I need, a, I need you to drive a van for me. I said, to do what? You know, I, I kind of thought I knew what he was talking about, but I didn't. I'm thinking, okay, I'm just supposed to be a support officer or I'm supposed to film something. No, I drove a team out to, to start running raid. I mean, just threw me the keys. So went out to this fire station in Oak Cliff, and I'm going, I have no idea what's going on. I, I'm just driving the van. I'm the oh, he only the thing he asked me was, do you have your driver's license with you? And I said, yeah. Okay. And... Uh, Went to, the, went to the substation. We formed up. They did their little deal. And all he told me was, you just drive us up. We're gonna, I'm going to lead you all the way there. When I tell you to stop, you hit those brakes. <laughs> and so I said, okay. Pull up to this house. And I hit, stop. Hit the brakes. And it's a shack. And, of course, it's got the iron bars on the door. Next thing he told me was... Get that van into a parallel position and back up to that door. And I, you know me, I'm a trainer. He's telling me what to do. I'm doing what he's telling me. So I turn that van, I back it up to the curb, and they start hooking up the chain to the van. He says, when I tell you to go, you floor and you, and fortunately there was a field, an open field across. So all the, my only obstacle was the, van, the curb on the other side. I'm like, holy moly, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So I better floor it. And it was an old van. And I floored it. And boom, man, I went jumping over that van, that open field. And I dragged that, that door all the way across the street into the field before I finally hit the brakes. By the time I turned around, they were, of course, already inside. Um, to me, that experience right there alone told me I knew where I needed to be. Because that, to me, was the same thing as my very first day field in you know that feeling that you get your first day out there out of the academy i like man this is awesome it's welcome well, the narcotics yeah that was it <laughs> what year what year was that uh the, the 90 no, 90 
Okay. 91, 92. Yeah, okay. 91 going into 92. Yeah. J- uh, July, yeah, July. July of 1992. Okay. That's when I got transferred up there. And so then we ran three more warrants. And I mean, the end of the day, I was exhausted. The just same from day? Driving. This, yeah. Wow. I was exhausted just from driving and the... The, the, the adrenaline. Oh, you're just running through you and out of you. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, and, wa- and of course, watching these guys, you know, and the way they were doing everything. I mean, this is awesome. Who were some of your teammates when you started over there? Oh, gosh. That's a, I, I, they were all from another, from other di- divisions. I had no idea who they were. I forgot who my trainer was. I, I almost said his name. He was very. He was a very well-known narcotics officer at the time. I. I mean, I knew him. I don't remember that on my squad, they were all. They must have had maybe four or five years of experience in police work, which to <laughs> me was not good. I mean, it, it was. I, I. I had problems with even uh, with them sometimes on the days that I had to take over the squad and. You know, I would tell them, you know, what they had to do and stuff like that. And, of course, they weren't they weren't paying attention, you know. Okay. Was so, that common up in narcotics to put no, young officers up, the, up there at that time? Yeah. yeah in okay. street squads, yeah. Because all they were going to be doing was they were going to be going down doing these hand-to-hand, these little these minor rips. things. Yeah. And yeah. that was that was the, drug, the war on drugs. Because your other, your major big squads, there was only like three of them. Three, yeah. I'm trying to think. The, the the big one that worked with the feds. Then there was the middle, the state task force mm-hmm. that I ended up at, and then there was the street squads. Yeah, so there was three 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 different units, and then there was the administrative section. Um, and I apologize for not being oh, for no, not no, remembering their names, and I apologize to them that I don't remember if they're listening. So I apologize up front, guys and gals. But uh, and when I use the term guys, by the way, I mean gals too. So I don't. Gotcha. Have to, so um, when you you said you went from the street squad up into the mid level, yeah, I, I I I I did enjoy every minute of doing undercover work in street squads, and because and it was because I we worked primarily the Oak Cliff area. And that was the heart of narcotics flow coming in. That's where the the big guys would come in, drop their loads, and then of course they start breaking it down from there. But it's as probably we, still as, that way. As we, yeah, as we were doing the small deals, that led to investigations for the mid and upper level squads. I'm sorry. Oh, and so, but that that intelligence was passed from us to them. Then they would take over. And I, I always thought, you know, that's, to me, that's a waste of time. Why don't you give, we, we did the initial contact. We know the, the, the people that started it for y'all. Why don't you let us continue or at least involve us in in the investigation? Uh, maybe not on, when it gets up to the, to the federal level, but at least up to the mid-level state task force. Uh, involved but they wouldn't that that was just the politics of the time you know and it probably had to be so and it probably still is but the one thing i was surprised though of when i went up there in july of 1992 there was only 100 narcotics officers and i don't know what the number is today but 
I thought for a city this size, 100 officers, that doesn't, and most of them were the street squads because there were six of them, one, one for each division. Yeah. Anyway, there were six of them. We worked Oak Cliff, and that was the majority of our contact, and I loved every minute of it because I got, I really, because I spoke Spanish, I was able to really blend in up there. Mm-hmm. Uh I brought up one of my rookies, uh, James Mendoza. I brought him up. I trained him in, at Northwest. And um, I, he, he and I, when when we teamed up together, we would, uh, you know, we had an experience account. And what we would do is we would, as soon as we left the office, we'd go down here on Irving Boulevard. We'd buy a six-pack of beer. And um, we'd, we'd load it up in this old pickup truck we had, and then we'd go uh, – we went uh, and bought us an old used lawnmower and got some black trash bags and loaded up with uh, with leaves. And we'd drive around an old cliff and wear these dirty clothes like we just finished mowing the lawn. We'd make a lot of great contacts like that. But anyway, uh, when uh, uh, Ted, uh, Ted, when David McCoy at Mid-Level State Task Force, when uh, his undercover officer for his squad, they only had... His squad only had one undercover officer, and all the other officers were support, but they were they were necessary. They were the lookouts. They were the intelligence gatherers. They were the cover. They covered my back and everything, but I was the main undercover officer, uh, and I went up and started working for David uh, after I'd been over with Ted Shin for a while, uh, and that's because the the undercover officer he had uh he's a lawyer now he left he left the department and he became a defense lawyer he's got i forget what his frank name. perez yeah yeah thank you very much i remember that yeah that yeah. oh yeah i remember that yeah him yeah very successful defense attorney very, very much so oh yeah he has a he, his office is over there in pleasant grove yeah, actually. yeah. I, I i i've driven by his office a couple of times going out to mesquite yeah, uh, he knew some he knows of the nice game. Cars. Yeah, he knew the game. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, uh, it, it was interesting. I, I I got some stories from David, but I, I replaced him, and I could never be like him. But I didn't want to be him either. I wanted to be me. What mm-hmm. I could do, I didn't want to go past my limits. But I could play up to my abilities and my my capabilities. I knew what my limitations were. I I knew when to step back to a point, you know. So, um, but you know, I got all my training on how to run a war attack, which they taught us and everything like that. And as, as a matter, what was I think it was that summer towards the end of that summer, Ted had an opening for our, uh, an undercover narcotics school in Las Vegas. And he says, uh, you want to go? I said, to Las Vegas for an undercover narcotics school? Yeah, I think I'll go. Yeah, right. And uh, so I got to go to that and uh, came back. A little bit more wiser. I, I, I did get some good training while I was there. Um, so that worked out real good up until, you know, that day, that Sunday. So, Okay, I want to get into your shooting. Okay. And I know it's going to be difficult. Uh, I are you comfortable talking about it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Can you kind of just walk the the listener through? Because it, it happened in 94, correct? Yeah. On Jan- a Sunday. On a Sunday. January. Can you, yeah. yeah. Can you talk, can you kind of paint 
a picture for the listener of of, of what that day was like and leading up to it? Yeah, uh, I had an apartment that was right across the street from the American Airlines Center. Not one of those fancy ones that's there now, but there was a little two-story brick building apartment complex that was right across the street from there. And so that's where I had an apartment. And that Sunday morning, I had gotten up, and I was going to start watching the, uh, uh, I forgot which, was it the first round of the NFL playoffs? And uh, I was looking forward to the Raiders-Denver game. And I'd gotten up, I'd watched the first game, I forgot who the first game was, but I was really looking forward to the Raider game, where Raider-Denver. And I don't, I don't remember why, but I just know I was looking forward to it. But uh, about early morning, uh, my sergeant called me. He says, hey, uh, we got an X amount kilo. I think he said 13. I think he said 13 kilo, 4 kilo deal. Do you want to do it? And what he meant by that, because I was his undercover officer, uh, I would have to either go in and start the investigation or, uh, well, he the way he put it up, he says, I've got a CI. Do you want to do it? I know it's Sunday. I'm going to have to, because you're the only one of our squad that lives in town, I need you to go out of the address, which was near Love Field, and start doing the surveillance on this place, which was part of the protocol for doing those sort of warrants at that time. I said, yeah, I, yeah, I'll drop everything. And, of course, we that squad at that time i guess it still is we were on call we didn't have a nine to five so if he called us on saturday night or sunday and do you want to do a deal it wasn't my choice we were going to be doing a deal so, but i wanted to do it and i said yeah let's do it so she sent me out there gave me the address i went out there set up surveillance and i was there the better part of the day they got the warrant we but went back to Central, assembled, uh, did our deal. At that time, uh, at that time, it being Sunday, and I think now they do it because it was a dynamic type warrant, the way it was set up and described, and the number of people that was that it was involving, because they were Dominican importing stuff from Houston uh, from the Dominican to Houston to Dallas it was a dy- it was going to be a dynamic and back then they had the option of us doing it or tech well we decided we were going David decided we were going to do it and um, it, w- w- which was protocol I mean we, we we ran our own it was not uncalled for so we formed, we went back out there about 5 o'clock that after Sunday Sunday evening. I was the driver of the van because I knew the location. Mm-hmm. So I knew which way we were going to be pulling in, what a part, there was going to be no doubt. When I got there, I'll, I'll, part of my job was to pull up in front, point to the door because it was, a, it, it was like an apartment complex with a facade of uh, everything looked alike, all the doors, all the windows. And um, pulled up, they hit the door, and uh, my numbered position, I believe, was either 5, 6, or 7, 8. 
uh, I think it was seven eight. I think I was number seven in the line of officers. So as soon as I put the car in brake, dropped the keys, got out, I was like I was the seventh man in line, and there was a number eight officer behind me. And we got to the door, and we had problems with the door. I mean, they hit it and hit it and hit it and hit it, and it had a Jamaican frame on. I think that's what they call the Jamaican frame, which was the the door on the inside was uh, had two by fours or steel frame. So they ended, the way the door was designed, they ended up having to break the lower panel. So we kind of crawled through the bottom of the door to get into the apartment. And I mean, it was helter skelter. Of course, patrol was all the way in the back surrounding the apartment and uh, helter-skelter people yelling, officers, people, women screaming, kids, you name it, it was going on. And the only thing that was missing, I think, was a dog. And there may have been a dog in there, I don't know. But I remember I was number seven or number five, and it uh, usually never happens to number seven or number five. Right. I mean, it's usually the lead, the rammer, or the, the lead officer. And w- w- I don't know what tag, but up in our cottage, we didn't have shields. Anyway, it, so wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have helped. It, w- it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have helped, but it would have been nice to have it there. Uh, we went in. We finally got in. There was helter skelter. We were going this way, going that way. Officers were taking suspects down. There was a bunch of was five or six suspects. And everybody was tied up, and I and I'm going halfway down. And I see this woman running from the from the middle of the living room where people are being taken down. Big one, and she's running towards these set of stairs. That's three steps up, a landing, and then a flight of stairs going up. And I see her going up, and then she's yelling, screaming. I get up to the take the three steps to the right, get up on the landing, and I'm starting to reach for her skirt. She's wearing a long tan pleated skirt, and I'm reaching. I've got my M. I'm wearing the helmet, the goggles, my normal body armor, then the outer body armor with all the heavy plates. And I mean, I'm covered head to toe, like a knight in shining armor, I guess. And um, I started to reach. I, I put my MP5 down because she's running, and I'm starting to reach for her, her skirt to pull her down so she doesn't get up to this flight of stairs and out of our view. And next thing I know, uh, I, I, I'm sitting back on that landing on my ass looking, looking at her going up the flight of stairs. And I'm wondering, and I'm hearing all this yelling and I'm wondering, what the fuck am I doing sitting down here on my ass? She reaches the top of the landing and next thing I know, all I see is two, her turn left and a figure follow behind her. And they turn, they go into this, turn out to be a bedroom. And next thing I know, um, I think it was Tim Robbins. He grabbed me by my shoulder and dragged me out of that landing down the steps, the three steps, and into the middle of the living room. And he lays me on my side. He says, where are you hit? Where are you hit? Where are you hit? He started yelling. And I'm looking at him and says, what are you talking about? I'm like, what are you talking about? Where am I? I'm not hit. He says, he said, where are you hit? The, you got shot. I mean, I think that's what he said, but I'm not sure. Uh, he is more concerned about looking for my injuries. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm carrying on a conversation, and I hear people people are yelling around him. People are like, keep him on his side and do this and do that. 
and uh, they're trying to, they're taking the outer body armor off of me. They're patting me down. I see them doing that, but I don't feel them doing that. But I'm watching them. I'm laying on the floor looking at them. They're patting me down. They're looking me over, and people are yelling, well, where's he hit? Where's he shot? And they're like, and they're yelling at each other back and forth, having big arguments about where I'm shot. And uh, next thing I know, uh, I'm laying there. I don't know how long I was laying there. But the raid turned into a narcotics bus on the first floor, a shooting of a police officer to a barricaded person in a span of seconds. And what happened was the suspect, he, he the, the guy, as a woman was going up the flight of stairs, you took a left into the apartment, and there's a a, a, a rail, a closed uh, rail that leads to a, I guess it led to a bathroom. I never saw the inside of the upstairs. A railing, but it's covered. It's not open. And what had happened was, as I was reaching for her, the guy shot four times down at me. And I found out later that he hit me here, he hit me here. Number three shot back left shoulder blade, but number four shot went between the, the, the bottom of the helmet and the top of that armor, in the neck, and the bullet went straight on my, my spine, spinal cord to the chest level, took a left turn into my lung, knocked me out completely, except for the fact that I was conscious the whole time. A, never, felt, never heard the shot, never saw the suspect, never felt the shooting, the, 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 the entry. Actually, I never heard him. The only reason I knew there was four shots because they told everybody else told me there was four shots fired, and I had, I had the markings on my body. They pulled me over. It was quite a while before because it turned into a barricaded person. Paramedics couldn't come in. Sergeants wouldn't let them come in uh, the, uh, because it, was, it turned into a barricaded person. Because the guy was still upstairs, they didn't know where he was. Sergeants called for attack. And Ted and David, uh, not Ted, but David decided, no, nah, the heck with it. No, it might have been Ted was there. I, I don't recall who all the sergeants were. Uh, they decided they're, they're going to go after him. And uh, that could have turned into a fiasco because what he had done was he ran into the bedroom behind a woman and he had surrounded himself with a bunch of kids. He flushed the dope. Uh, the only thing we had left over was the wrappers. Uh, he surrounded himself with his kids. I think there was like six of them in there and the woman. And then they finally went in there, busted the door down, and, and got him out. Uh, and it wasn't until they got him out that they let the paramedics in to get me out. And then they, they still had problems getting me out that damn door because it was still framed in. There was parts of it still hanging <laughs> mm-hmm. off the hinges, you know. Uh, they got me on, 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 on the ambulance. Uh, you know, although the, the paramedics themselves were like, where are you shot? Where are you shot? When they initially got me up there. And I'm like loke, joking and yelling. I said, like, man, guys, I have no idea where I'm shot because I don't feel anything. You never lost consciousness? Never lost. I lost consciousness when they took me out of the uh, uh, emergency triage room. And they took me into surgery and knocked me out. That was the last thing I remember is when they put me out. I was conscious the whole time. I was talking to people and joking with them. Paramedics came up and visited me, the ones that transported me. They came up and visited me when I was in Parkland after I got out of ICU. And uh, one of the paramedics says, I cannot believe, said, 
You had just been shot. You'd been left like this. And you were joking with us about which route we should take <laughs> from there to Parkland Hospital. I kept tell because I, I could kind of tell which way they were going physically in the ambulance because I knew which way they had to go. And as soon as they, the way they were positioned, they were right on Brock Bank. They went to their fire station, went towards Harry Hines and went south. So I knew the zigzagging, the motions, because hell, I'd driven them myself thousands of times. So I knew which route they were going, and I kept saying, I said, man, you ought to hit traffic there. You should, no, you, you, go, you ought to go that straight down Harry Hines. Sunday evening, I kept saying, there's no traffic on Hines. And they went up on Stemmons because they started blocking traffic for the ambulance all the way down. You know, I, I later found out that uh, they had started blocking the freeway so they could the escort could get through there. And got to Parkland. I was joking with the nurses, just messing with them. And I'm, they're, they're asking me all these questions, you know. Uh, are you allergic to this, that, and the other? And I'm like, I hope not, you know. And uh, I honestly thought, I, was, I thought, well, gee, I'm going to get some time off now. I had no idea. No idea what had happened to me. When did you find out uh, what happened? I think I was in ICU for two weeks. Three weeks unconscious the whole time. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't until probably the fourth week that I was there that I was up in my room uh, that uh, I came to finally. And the doctor came in. You know, he told me. He says, uh, you know, he's, he gave me my options. He said, you're paralyzed and you can stay like this for the rest of your life. He says, there's another option. He says, you know, you're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And, you know, we could amputate your leg. Oh, no, we ain't going that route. No, buddy. Um, because at, at that point, when it, they told me what had happened, what was, what, what uh, I was going to be back at work. I was going to go through therapy. I wasn't going to be paralyzed the rest of my life. Uh, even if I was, I could still drive a van. I could do all these awesome things, which never played out in terms of work. Uh, other things worked out. Uh, in that respect, I, I, I'm a very lucky person. But uh, in terms of going back to work and what had happened, is it, it just uh, and and even even when when they put when I went to Baylor Rehab, I went there for rehab. The whole time I was there, they did an awesome job on me. Uh, Tony Crawford had gone there. I think Tony went there. Yeah. And uh, so when they asked me at, at, when I was at Parkland, which rehab center I wanted to go to, I automatically said, well, Baylor. For one thing, it was going to be close to, to downtown. So if I needed stuff, you know, DPA, department, everybody could come down there and help me out. And uh, it got it got to be a zoo down there. Beta rehab, people coming and going, this, that, and the other. Funny, but it was, it was kind of was a fun time. I mean, I mean, I had saw people I hadn't seen in years and everything like that. But it, the things that they were trying to to help me with there were putting me into a state of mind of, you know, oh, gee, this is bad. You know that that's that's. When that doctor said we could we, we we could amputate your legs so that you don't have to deal with what you're going to have to deal with with your paralysis. 
And so I said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, because I honestly, like I said, I, I was going to be walking in months. That's what I thought. It, and it the, other, the other thing is like three weeks before that incident, I had been working for the feds on some wiretaps. And uh, I'm not bragging, but they offered me a, I forgot how long the school was. They offered uh, to send me up to Washington to the DEA school. And then after I finished the DEA school, I was allegedly, the way my sergeant put it to me, he says, I'll let you go to that school, but you've got to promise it when you come back that you're going to work for us. You're not going to be going working for them. So the implication was that I was going to be loaned out. Yeah. Mm. Like a task force. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I saw that as another opportunity. So I took it, and I had I had all I had everything by my plane ticket. I had my paperwork, my orders, what where to report, what day, this that, and the other, what to bring for clothes, how to handle my business here, because I was going to be gone for like four to six weeks, something like that. It was going to be a shortened version of the DEA school, but it's what they send narcotics officers to from different agencies to go up there and learn what to do under federal protocol. You had the, I, I read an article with you, uh, you, you were, I think it's Dallas News, um, about you coming to acceptance that this is, this is how it's going to be. Can, can you explain that? Well, you, it was at Baylor Rehab that, that it finally settled in uh, because now I was going through the motions. I saw what they were doing and telling me and putting me through that everybody else was taking it more serious than I was, so to speak. It was very difficult to, to accept it uh, because you don't want to accept it. Uh, you have so many dreams, aspirations, what my plans were. Uh, uh, I was not ready to retire either in patrol or narcotics or police work or Dallas. I mean, I loved it here. I loved doing everything that I was doing. I, I, I mean, there was so many. I mean, that horizon was getting broader and broader. And so I thought, okay, well, now I can't get reach that far out, but I can reach far. I can reach out. So I can still be doing this. Okay, so I can go to narcotics and I can work the desk and handle the call to come in where they need an interpreter. I can work the, with the feds, work wires. And then you find out that you can't be sitting in a wheelchair for long periods of time. Actually, after I retired from the police department, I ended up working for the DPA for a while, working the desk. And uh, I think a year or so that I worked there, and uh, I ended up having a skin breakdown. Ended up having to go back to the hospital. And the doctor said, you know, you, we're going to repair you. We're going to, but I ended up in the hospital for several weeks again. And they said, next time this happens, you're going to spend the rest of your life in the bed. You're not even going to be able to get up. And at that point, I was driving in my truck. I was able to transfer into a truck. I was driving five, six days a week. I was going to the store by myself. 
you know, I was doing everything that everybody else does except walk and run and swim and play racquetball and ride my bike. I mean, I, at that stage in my life, when I went up to narcotics, uh, I, actually, I'd been running since the mid-70s, so I was doing that. But uh, I was reliving my teenage years that I never got to experience in my 40s. And uh, I, and then I had my family. I had to deal with, I had not deal, but I, I tried to support them. I had to be around for them. I, I just couldn't give up. Because at that point, your only option is suicide. Being Catholic... Not devout, but being Catholic, I there's, I can't do that. I can't do that to my I can't do that to myself really, uh, to my family, to the religion. I mean, if I if I abide by by the ethics of it, I can't do it. But it sits on your mind. But then and then you see other people that are paralyzed; they can get by. But the suicide rate is so high among paralyzed people. But I mean, it was, it was, it was, it, what kept me going was okay in my own mind. I could, but then there was a support system that I had. If it hadn't have been for my family, for my police family, uh, for the doctors, for the Baylor, Re- Baylor Rehab did an awesome job. As a matter of fact, the intern nurse that was working for, uh, uh uh, for Dr. Bruce at, at Baylor Rehab. Dr. Bruce, he was the lead doctor at Baylor Rehab. He had an intern named Rita Hamilton that was trained to be a rehab doctor. She is now the head nurse, the head doctor of Baylor Rehab, and she happens to be my spinal cord injury nurse now. And we and she only became that a couple of years ago. We just inadvertently ran across each other again. And, and uh, when I was at uh, Baylor Rehab, they had to put me in under a, a pseudonym. They couldn't use my real name. So my sergeant came up with the name of Tony Romo, believe it or not. <laughs> Tony, wow. <laughs> Tony Romo. I said, it's you. I didn't realize, I didn't connect the name to her, you know. Right. I'm like, oh, wow, what a small world. But they did a, They did an awesome job of, of uh, putting me back together as much as possible. But uh, they, they, they were trying to get me to go way beyond what I was cap- physically capable of. Uh, because... People, a lot of just and and there's no need, there's no way that then most normal people know, but my paralysis is from my chest down. A lot of people think it's from the waist down because we all normally think like that because yes. we're not walking, or a person's not walking in a wheelchair. Who were some of the police officers that were helping you out? Oh gosh, so many. Mike Miller, uh, Monty Monty Mayor. They loved those two at, at Baylor Rehab because they were like uh, the cartoon characters the two i forgot the jekyll heckle and jekyll heckle and jekyll thank you very much <laughs> that's what they were referred to at baylor rehab because they would come down there and they get into arguments on how about how to install the vcr in my room or what i needed by my bed because i had a big suite uh at baylor rehab i had a room all to myself and but uh glenn white monica smith there, there were just so many people involved uh david mccoy of course my sergeant uh the the, the the squad uh dotty uh, uh dotty yeah dotty uh, because i knew that she had been in narcotics and she'd been a police officer but uh, and what happened was part of the uh, rehab program you're you're supposed to go to the physical therapy psych therapy and this that and the other well i put off going to psych therapy that they had there on site 
because in my mind I was doing okay. I was going to be okay. I was going to be, you know, that mindset. Well, I went to go see the head shrinker there. And after the second session, I, to I told Dr. Bruce, I am not going to see that woman ever again. I don't want to see her. I'm not going to see her. Well, you've got to talk to somebody. Well, yeah, but it ain't going to be her. Of course, she was the staff head shrinker there. She depressed me more in those two sessions than I had ever thought about being. I mean, she pushed me. She almost pushed me to the point of suicide. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, man, I, I, I think I can do better on my own. And that was my mindset. I mean, I had done so much. I, if I could survive Vietnam, if I could survive, uh, you know, all those years of patrol and all the stuff I got into, the chases, uh, the wrecks, uh, collisions, uh, I mean, just so many things that I survived. I'm like, I can survive this. You know, I'm okay. And I, and I, I did talk to Dottie, but never on a formal basis. She put it more on a personal friend-to-friend, -friend, you know, somebody I could go talk to. Uh, and she put things in perspective and stuff like that, which led, which that led to eventually when we created ATO, her volunteering to help us out. She was a great contact person for people that really needed, you know, they were really on the brink of a, a, a disaster, whether it be financial, uh, a personal uh, marriage or, you know, uh, situations. She was a great, awesome person. Well, I want to roll into this formation of the ATO of how that was going. Cause you know, Tom Popkin, give a shout out to Tom. Tom has been, uh, every, every month reaching out to me. Did you, did you record David yet? Did you record David yet? And, and we've been trying to set this up for months and here we are. Finally. Yeah. So Tom, I know you're listening. I actually text Tom just now a picture of us sitting here. Oh, and he he, great. he, he hey, said, yeah, he's he's going to be excited to hear this episode when it releases. But um, the formation of the ATO, can you talk about your involvement and how that got rolling? I, I was very fortunate to be there at the time. But what happened was, you know, uh, Bill Carollo, uh, Tom, Glenn White, they had all been talking about doing something to help officers out and stuff like that and and actually the board as a, as a whole all the members they they were in their meetings they would always because officers would call the dpa and i and i found this out when i started working for them down there officers would call and they would a lot of them were asking about financial assistance but you could tell it in their voices on the telephone that they were in distress and that they were right on the brink of giving it all up well, what could the DPA do to help? Well, at that time, we had nothing. I mean, we had no, uh, you know, we had contacts that we could send people to to help them with, uh, you know, uh, financial counseling, but no, nothing in terms of, uh, they needed like right now. They needed on a Sunday night, middle of the night, not Monday, you know, on a bank day or this, that. You know, they need something like right now. Uh, and, and, of course, they were reluctant to reach out to their friends, and maybe they couldn't reach out to their family, whatever reasons they had. But they would call the DPA, and the DPA knew that there was officers out there, and then that they were also needing counseling-type help mm -hmm. because they were needing it, and most of them didn't want to go to the police department because there you were exposed to being exposed because there's that city paperwork, and 
workers comp and somebody's going to leak out then so-and-so is over here needing a head shrinker or financial help or something like that you know so we really had nothing and they we all just kind of got together and we, we we sat around and you know we kicked it around everybody was throwing ideas and the main thing that i that i contributed was that i said look the, the, yeah i'm answering phone calls out here not a lot but i'm answering enough calls that we need to form we need to do something we need to find money in the budget somewhere along the line even if it means increasing the dues which we shouldn't do but we ought, maybe ought to and of course the argument was well they ought to be able to take care of their finances and says well there's just sometimes you just run up against a brick wall you just nothing you can do about it you know and we were arguing among each other but we finally got together and said okay this is well maybe we ought to do we can do it well me at the time i kind of became the poster boy <laughs> took a picture of me in my wheelchair and I, I i'm sure they don't have those brochures anymore but they plastered me on that brochure and you know, sympathy brings in money. I mean, you 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 put a poster boy out there, a person, and you see somebody in a wheelchair, and oh man, you know, and you see their little biography of what happened: police officer shot, uh, executing search, drug warrant. Uh, will you contribute? And and I, people accepted that. I mean, it, it wasn't a tactic, but because I had been on board, you know. And I was honored enough to say, to be told that, you know, to be, and I was a member, an originating member of the board, yeah. Uh, and I just put in ideas. That it wasn't my original idea. I just happened to be there at that time. <clears throat> and I was very happy to use my story to put it. I could have easily said, no, I don't want to be out there. But, you know, why not use this as one of those reaching out to help somebody else type deal? Nothing I could do for myself. It was really Tom and them. I mean, yeah, we would meet some odd hours and some, some odd places to talk about things, uh, you know. But uh, it was it was Tom and Bill that actually did the leg work, uh, so to speak. But they did the the heavy work of putting the 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 paperwork together, uh, along with Bob Gorski, who did our legal work for us. Yep. I mean, if it hadn't been for Bob, we we couldn't have gotten going as quickly as we did. Once the idea was put together, let's, okay, it's here, the idea's here, let's do it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, we at least made the effort. And look where y'all are today. I mean. Yeah, did you ever imagine it would be what it is? We, I mean, those first few meetings, I wrote out a check, I think for a hundred bucks. That was my contribution at that time. I mean, I wasn't the only one. I'm just saying. That's where we were. We, we were having to put money out of our own pockets in there to help, you know. And it was, uh, I want to say it was $100. Anyway, I remember writing a check at that at that point. Um, it's the least I could I, I could do and everything. But uh, th- 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 that felt good. I mean, that, that we were doing something for others within the department. Well, you're doing something that's decade going to affect decades of officers. Oh yeah, well, yeah, and, and of course we knew, and you, you, we were thinking, okay, we, and and as we were starting to build slowly and surely, we were looking at the numbers that were coming in, going out, and we weren't seeing enough people coming and using our services, and so okay, then we started advertising, and once we started advertising out to our own department. And they started accepting, 
And then they started spreading the word out there. I mean, that was that was the best thing. When people started using the services that we that we provided, that's when people really kicked started to using it, and it expanded to where where it is today. I mean, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think in some of the broadcasts I heard, you guys were talking about over a hundred grand a year or something like that. At least. At least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, I should have said at least. So. Yeah, well, we we have so many f- fundraisers now that uh, oh. that we get our money from. You know, uh, you mentioned Bill Bill Carollo. So we, today uh, we're recording this. It's gonna it's gonna air later, but we're recording on April April fifth. Yeah, it is actually the anniversary of his death. Right. And and Tom pointed that out. Yes, he. he uh, tragically lost his life but he was one of the founders of the of this yeah. organization yeah it's uh it, it's uh kind of funny uh, you know uh, that you know we were we were creating this for people that were, might need financial or psych services down the road and here were some of us that were founders that were have needed that you know you know, I, and I appreciate Tom and him giving me the credit, but I no, the idea was formed in their heads. I just happened to be an extra mouthpiece at the point at the time to uh, reinforce their idea of why we needed it. Because the more positive uh, information that the board, uh, Glenn and and them, got from us, the more I kicked the idea off. And then they started doing. Uh, they started pushing the uh, for sponsorships of the golf tournaments yep. from the initial tournaments that started out, you know, very small. I mean, they're the ones that went out there and started reaching, doing the PR work for for, for the ATO. I mean, uh, I, I did very little of that. I, I wish I'd have been able to, but uh, Tom, one of the very first one of the very first places that Tom went. Yeah, I'm not going to tell that story because that's not fair. <laughs> okay. Tom did a great job of of going out there and 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 being a mouthpiece on his own time uh, to do to to get organizations to uh, 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 sponsor us and uh, and raise money for us and everything like that. And then as as it grew and more people and more officers used it. The more we were able to feed off of that, helping them, for them returning that help we gave them to help us to provide security, to do traffic control at the Freedom Run, and then officers that never even used our services because they knew how we were helping all their officers that needed help, their friends and their pals, they would offer their services. We put out a, hey, we need officers to help with the free, you know, we'd go meekly asking. You know, we'd, we'd, no time at all, we'd have officers. It's awesome the number of people that are out there that are unknown, that do support. And, and they, and they want to stay quiet for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, they don't want to be protested on because you're supporting the police. And, I mean, we're talking way back there in the early 90, uh, early 2000s even. They didn't want to be associated, but they wanted to support us in they, and they just said, "Hey, look, we'll 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 offer this. Just keep us quiet." And some of them would say, "Yeah, could you put a banner up somewhere, or you know, flash our name out there somewhere?" Yeah, we'll we'll do all that. 
well, to support something, and you know, you you say that you weren't a part of you, you did Tom and and uh, and Bill and all those guys did all the the quote unquote heavy lifting. You're still you were a symbol. You were a symbol of of of, of what could happen in this job, and also what an organization like this can do to help somebody and assist. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, and, and it's a visual. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's no doubt about that. It's, it's a strong visual. You know, and, and there's people out here walking healthy, and they've been told by their doctors, you're going to die in six weeks because of a cancer. You'll never know about it. I mean, even some of our own officers. Yeah. And to some of them, you know, it's just unexpected. They're told you have a cancer of some type. But Tom Popkin, he's, he's super well-known throughout our department, and even – Outside the department, right? So, for him to to give you credit the way he has means that you've done something more than than you recognize. Well, and, and I appreciate that, but you know, Tom and I go years. He goes back with a lot of people, and like I said, his reputation is, I is got, remarkable. Yeah, I got stories on him. He bet he ought to be. <laughs> he better be not. He better be no. We can edit those out. He, uh, we 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 go back. Back to when he joined and the, uh, the department, and then if you didn't have fun out here, you know it, it'll eat you up, you know, e- uh, very easily. So uh, we go back many years, and uh, we bailed each other each other out of a, a, a lot of situations that could have gone the the wrong way. Well, we're sitting here today because of those yeah. hard conversations and because of those arguments and and odd meetings at different places uh so we're we're we're, i'm grateful to what y'all built that's one thing this podcast the mission was when it started is to for for multi-levels to yeah i've seen the website and the website is awesome i mean compared to the the original website that we kind (laughs) of like put out there you know you read this one it's uh, the coloring the the makeup of it is great and the stories are great uh and then now this and it's kind of like wow you know who came up with this one that's great also great idea you know well it's to get uh, more exposure for a good thing is that's never a bad thing right? right to have more exposure and to get more stories out there to get your story out to get ed's story out to get randy's to you know wolverton eventually will get his story out so it, it's it's about it we're all connected in so many ways whether we're police or civilian we're all humans and we all has to oh, we yeah. all have the same struggles right and I, I'm just grateful to be a part of something that y'all put together years ago. And I've benefited from the ATO okay. uh, over the years. Yes, through the counseling services and Dottie. You know, she's she's incredible human, and she helped me a lot. Yeah, I mean, I she she's one of the counselors that uh, in the beginning I told her I said Dottie, if we ever go beyond the number of sessions that an officer needs out here for for help i said don't bother putting in paperwork just call me let me know that somebody needs needs your services tomorrow and you've got it but just call me let me know mm-hmm. and there was several times that she called me and you know and I, there was never any question in my mind that she was that she was the type of person that was trying to scam the system you oh, know what no. i'm trying to say uh and uh, but she was she was the one that I would refer when people would call in and ask. She's the number one person, and we had some officers. I forgot how who some of the earlier ones were, but anyway, she was the main one. 
Well, I'll say this about I'll say this about Dottie. She is still our the, she takes the majority of the clients from from our, our network of counselors. And no offense to anybody, we have some amazing ATO no. counselors in our in our stable now. But Dottie still is she was the first, and she has the most uh, people going to her. And it doesn't matter if you're young or old officer. I was just contacted by a two-year officer last night talking about how Dottie helped him. Oh. So it shows you her connectivity with humans and then especially officers is as strong as it's ever been. She's, yeah. she's incredible, and yeah. she's a she's an asset. Yeah, I, I just can never say enough about her, so I'm going to hate to see her when she goes. Yeah, we are too. You know, she's a great asset to have. But maybe she'll find us a good replacement, you know. So she's got she's got some people she is uh, mentoring right now that I believe are going to uh, not maybe fill her shoes entirely, but do an amazing job. Yeah. Well, that's good. I so. think you said, you guys set a really a great tone. You know, no one ever wants to take any credit for anything, uh, and everyone tries to put it off, push it off to the next person. And I think that's been a good you know no me people down there. Everyone's been great team players with my involvement, and I think. I think we're going to be okay, no. just because you the, from the, the 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 groundwork that was laid back in the late nineties, yeah, you know from uh, from Glenn to Eddie Crawford, uh, Bill and Tom and everything that that first board did getting things set yeah. up and going. It's been, uh, yeah. I, I don't think they could have imagined what we do in the scope and I mean the, that oh, it, no it keeps getting wider and wider, you know podcast now i think that's yeah. I yeah, anybody we, ever envisioned that we have people listening and i looked at japan listening to this i mean oh, it's really? it's just it's odd that that people in japan and uh finland are listening wow. are downloading sissy officer foundation here in dallas uh, uh stories yeah no the 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 groundwork was laid by a bunch of guys that are just 100 percent servants i mean from the yeah. time that you left high school early to to join the navy and then join the police department, and then from the police department to the ATO to the DPA. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's just one of those feelings that just happens. It, it's not. It's just so, who you are. Sometimes it's in the family, but sometimes, yeah, you just you just know it's the right thing to do. Well, you know? thank you for and, for doing the right thing oh, and, and being uh, that guy. I know you've got an incredible story, and I can't wait to get this out. Believe me, all the experiences I, I've got. <laughs> I, I've had so many experiences. I, w- I wouldn't have seen half the world that I've seen if it hadn't been for this police department and the people I've been associated with. I think it's a perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank you for your incredible service to the city of Dallas and the department. And you've given so much. Um, think of all the rookies, off, rookie officers that you mentored that went on to have incredible careers because of what you taught them in starting this help and starting this foundation i'm i'm honored to to be sitting with you today oh. and i'm extremely glad to get your story out there oh you're more welcome i'm glad you uh, glad you all got filling in the big shoes that tom laid out tom and, and uh, uh bill laid out there and everything like that so uh, uh, we're, we're trying all right thank you much i appreciate today and your time thank you David. okay thank you. Sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon 
on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy When the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run Up from the bottom Yeah, we'll rise above Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way I'll never give up on you.